give people this power to say all I need is one person to threaten, to avoid free speech, that could kill every speech, not just the speech of these people. Welcome to The Shape of Dialogue. Today, I bring you a wide-ranging discussion on freedom of speech with world-renowned political and moral philosopher, University of Otago's Emeritus Professor, James Flynn. Professor Flynn is famous for the Flynn Effect, the discovery of significant IQ gains from one generation to another worldwide. In his work, he has combined psychology with political and moral philosophy to investigate a range of subjects from the justification of humane ideals to race, class and IQ. He has debated American academics Arthur Jensen and Charles Murray on the relationship between race and IQ, arguing that environment rather than genes has the greatest effect on determining IQ. Professor Flynn has written 18 books and has been honoured around the world for his work. He has recently published a book on freedom of speech in universities. Politically, James Flynn is on the left. In the 1960s, he chaired the Congress of Racial Equality, a civil rights organisation in the US South. During that period, he was consistently fired from his academic positions for his social democratic politics, which prompted his emigration to New Zealand. In the 1970s, he advised New Zealand Labour Prime Minister Norman Kirk on foreign policy. He was head of University of Otago's Department of Politics for 30 years from the late 1960s. Professor Flynn is a strong advocate for the importance of dialogue and freedom of speech as our fundamental pathways to knowledge and objective truth. I'm sure you will enjoy Professor Flynn's erudite thinking on this foundational subject. And now I give you Professor James Flynn. Can you define for us what free speech actually is? Well, there is a distinction that goes right back to Plato between knowledge and right opinion. And you can be incredibly fortunate. You can live in a time that just happens to be spot on in terms of the truth. And without any reflection or knowledge, you can parrot the views of that society and they happen to be true, but only because you're historically very lucky indeed. To have knowledge, you not only have to have the right opinions, but you have to be able to vouch for their truth. Now, no one has a claim that they believe a truth unless they can refute every serious objection to it. And I, in my mind, like all philosophers, I try to imagine all the objections to my position on free will or all the objections to my position on humane ideals or all the objections to my position as a social democrat. And you carry on that interior debate and you can only claim to have knowledge if you carry on that debate and think you win it. But all of us, of course, tend to be partial. And it's much better if other people argue with us who really believe in the positions that we're putting up as essential, just possible objections. I mean, it's much more vigorous to run into a Freedmanite who argues the Freedman position rather than to try to create in your own mind a debate between you and a Freedmanite. 
So if you want knowledge, it has to be a knowledge that comes from a dialogue. And the wider that dialogue is, the better, up to a certain point. I mean, you're not going to waste half of your life arguing with someone who believes in crop circles, because the evidence against this is pretty immediate and pretty overwhelming. But I've often profited enormously from arguing with people who I felt their positions were not true, but they were better than crop circle positions. They at least had some reason and argument behind them. And this applies to people who think that blacks are on average genetically inferior for IQ. It, uh, it's argument with people who essentially feel that any interference with government with the economy is wrong. It's arguing with people who feel that humane ideals self-destruct in practice. Uh, all of these things have enormously increased my knowledge because this is what knowledge is all about, knowing how to refute contrary opinions. And I've been lucky enough to have the notoriety that I don't just find these people in books, that is, I've actually argued with Arthur Jensen about race and IQ. I've actually argued with Charles Murray about his libertarian views. You know, I've had that, and that's what a university should be all about. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't represent every idea in the curriculum, but you can certainly have invited on campus speakers whose views are not mirrored in the curriculum, and that's one way of being forced to take their ideal seriously. This is what was so pathetic when Middlebury the students managed to prevent Charles Murray from talking. Actually, he was talking about something that had nothing to do with their passions, namely whether in America today there are increasingly greater social distance between various groups. That is, whether various social groups have less in common than they used to be. And the students saw him as an ambassador for racism. Uh, none of them cared that he wasn't really speaking about racism. Not one of them would have known enough to refute, if he had chose to speak on race, not one of them would have known enough to deal with these arguments. He would have absolutely overwhelmed them with the erudition. So this was a chance on their part to go beyond saying, gee, I feel sort of benevolent about blacks and no one should give them a hard time to going on to a sort of sophistication where you could look at the evidence that Jensen has brought forward and see what contrary evidence there was and make up your own mind as to who is right. And I'll say one other thing. People say, oh, I believe in free speech, but, and they then outlaw Jensen and won't let him talk, and they outlaw Murray and won't let him talk. Uh, and they don't seem to realize that the only substitute for a battle of ideas is a test of strength. The only reason they could get rid of Murray was that they could threaten to do him more harm than he could do to them. They could threaten to beat him up. They could threaten to shout him down. So when you put aside free debate for something else, it's always might makes right. You know, there's no third alternative. They're really turning the issue into a test of strength mm. as to who can mobilize the most coercive force to shut the other person up. Where does freedom of, of speech sit in the importance of aspects that are paramount in our society? Well, I like to believe that since the Enlightenment, our society has made 
gradual though feeble progress to a more humane society. And if you read my stuff on moral philosophy, I think that human autonomy is one of the six great goods that come from the Enlightenment. I mean, the six goods are that we're less tolerant of avoidable suffering, the utilitarian bull, we want to increase happiness. There is the pursuit of truth, which of course what I'm saying is very directly uh, in line with that. There is doing justice, that is not drawing arbitrary distinctions between people and making it the base of penalty. There is the creation of beauty. Many people today, uh, compared to a medieval serf, have a greater appreciation of beauty and accessibility towards it. And tolerance. The more you know about other people, the more you're likely not just to define human being in terms of your own tribe. And then finally, there's human autonomy. And human autonomy means our capability of transcending our time and place and making a critical judgment about it and defining ourselves as distinct from what others tell us we ought to be. So freedom of speech has an obvious relationship to the pursuit of truth, but it's also one of the six great goods of humanism to try and become an autonomous human being who has not just got a head full of what they hear in the media or a head full of what their political leaders tell them to confuse them. So essentially what you're saying is that for the pursuit of knowledge, you have to have freedom of speech. You must. I mean, what else is there, as I say? The, you have to draw a distinction between knowledge and right opinion. And the mark of knowledge is that you can answer all of the reasonable objections and evidence to your position. Sorry, and what, if you what, can't do that, you yeah. merely have right opinion by accident. So what do you mean by right opinion? That is where you just happen. Let's imagine I happen after many, many years of researching race and IQ, I think it is more probable than not that blacks and whites have pretty much the same distribution of genes for intelligence. Uh, that might well be something that I believe just because I was in with a liberal group of liberals and they all thought that. Well, they would have right opinion. I mean, what they believe is true, but they wouldn't have knowledge. Mm -hmm. That is, they wouldn't be able to make an evidential case for what they believe. They wouldn't be able to convince an opponent who was evenly divided in their own mind. Uh, they don't have knowledge. They just happen, they're like a record, and someone has recorded on that record what happens to be true. So, so it's knowledge that conforms with the, the current norms or trends in society. They can be right or wrong. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're in my lifetime, Social trends have favored, to some degree, the emancipation of women. There have been social trends that have improved relationships between the races. There have been other social trends, of course, that haven't made much progress at all. That is, I don't think we... Uh, you would never have convinced me when I began lecturing, what would it be now, uh, 60 years ago, that if we doubled the number of university graduates, the reading of great literature would actually go down. You know, I'd have thought that's insane. You double the number of university graduates. So there's been a tendency, thanks to the world of visual culture, away from 
being literate in the great books, there's a tendency to produce an ahistorical generation who can't break out of the bubble of the present and criticize their own times. There has been the slow drift towards climate change, which now looks irreversible. And of course, there's been no real attempt to put nuclear weapons back in their box. Mm -hmm. And also, there's been a greater and greater tendency to economic inequality. So the balance sheet is not all one way. There have been some good trends and some bad trends. Mm -hmm. But look at how few people today have an intelligent opinion on climate change. Mm -hmm. Now, there are powerful motives for that. If you do that research, I think you become highly alarmed and highly insecure. So that gives you a vested interest in not taking a very close look at it. It's easier to ignore it than... Yes, I think, that. for example, the Green Party in New Zealand. Uh, they want to do all sorts of good things, and these things will reduce ozone emissions. But they won't face the fact that we're beyond the point where any conceivable progress in limiting ozone emissions and carbon dioxide will actually avoid runaway climate change, and they refuse to face this mm. because it would mean climate engineering. And they think of that as unnatural, mm. as if we weren't at present conducting the most enormous experiment in climate engineering in human history. We're already doing it. Why not do it right? Mm. Mm. So there, there are many, many groups that I feel have right opinion rather than knowledge, and usually that pays a price. It's very unusual to have been indoctrinated with all the right opinions. You usually have some that are right, but since you can't think about them or evidence them or draw their conclusions, sooner or later you fall off the path to truth. At this point in our conversation, we moved away from subjects specifically relating to freedom of speech and into areas such as university education, intelligence and the black-white IQ difference in America. This ultimately led to Professor Flynn talking about his debates with academics Arthur Jensen and Charles Murray, which led us back onto freedom of speech. We'll start the conversation there again, but before we do that, there is a small snippet that's worth crowbarring in at this point. Professor Flynn briefly mentions the freedom of speech constraints in a women's studies course. He'd just been talking about the mathematical aptitude difference between boys and girls, which led us back to freedom of speech and to some of the things that can't be said within the hallowed confines of a gender studies course. Uh, let us imagine that boys and girls are born with just as good genes for mathematical thinking even at the extremes. Well, right from the start, we have child psychologists who tell us that for some reason, girls tend to be more sociable and empathetic than boys. If someone walks past little newborn boys and girls are just beginning to focus, the girls will focus on a human passerby more than the boys. If another child cries, the girl is more likely to cry in sympathy than the boy is. So right from the start, there seems to be a greater involvement of girls in human beings. Now, let's look at maths. Girls do just as well as boys do in, let's say, the maths you use in biology and psychology. 
They don't do as well in the maths and organic chemistry. They fall off a bit more in applied mathematics. They fall off a bit more in pure mathematics. Now that may not have anything to do with deficient genes. It may be for, uh, for maths. It may be that women, on average, want maths to have a human application more than boys do. And pure maths has almost no human application, while biology and psychology do. So there could be a genetic difference without there being an intellectual genetic mm -hmm. difference. It could be a temperamental difference. Mm -hmm. We don't know yet. I'm just giving what I've got from reading the literature to this point, mm -hmm. and I should say that the number of girls who get the highest possible mark on maths on the scholastic aptitude test has gone down from a ratio of 10 males to 1 to 2 males to 1. So it may be that the hypothesis that there are temperamental genetic factors that limit girls at that level is false. But there could be a genome genetic factor there without having anything to do mm. with the intellect. Why does it matter? And this, you see, the discussion we've just had, you just couldn't have in most women's studies. Right, come. so that actually... It would be absolutely forbidden. That actually gets us back to the freedom right. of speech, doesn't it? So you can't, you can't, if you're in most women's studies departments, you are absolutely forbidden to have a sane attitude on gender differences. So, so you would, if you said something like that, you would be... Um, categorized as a sexist, you know, right, right? As being, a, you, they would not, not necessarily doubt my sincerity, but I had been indoctrinated. So, so in their in their thinking, there's a point of no return. If you if you there if, are you, if, you, if you get, if you go go past yeah. a, a certain point or an axiom, yeah. you fall off a cliff. There are certain axioms. There must be no, even mildly statistical differences between races or genders for intelligence performance. But you see, the only way I came to that conclusion was reading Jensen, trying to find evidence that supported him, trying to find evidence that conflicted with him. Can, can we actually just, because, I mean, I don't actually know who Jensen is. I've heard you Arthur talk to Jensen Jensen was a professor at Berkeley, yeah. who in 1969 published an article that created a sensation that was entitled something like, uh, oh, how to increase IQ or something of that sort. And he came to the conclusion that blacks were about were not equal to whites, but even if you equalize them for socioeconomic status, there would still be an average 10-point gap. And that's quite significant. And he was an honest man. He refused to fudge the data, and he published it in the Harvard Educational Review, at which point people threatened to bomb his lectures, beat his children so, up. So he's a precursor to um, the experiences of Charles Murray. Except that Murray has never committed himself on the question of a genetic difference. Mm. I've debated Murray mm. twice. Mm. And he's always very careful to say that he doesn't think the gap will close. Mm. Now, it's hard for me to... Uh, he could mean by that that blacks will never get an equal shake in America. Mm. <laughs> you see, they could be genetically equal. So his position is much more ambiguous than Jensen. 
But I'm, I'm, in terms, not so much what they're saying, but in terms of the experience. They're tarred with the of, same brush. And again, if, because he mentions Jensen favorably in his book. Yeah. He mentions Jensen's arguments. Yeah. And he doesn't say he endorses them, but he puts them up as reasonable arguments. Yeah. But they it, are reasonable arguments. But getting back to free speech. Well, look issues. what I learned yeah. by not being forbidden to yeah. read the works of Jensen and Murray and others. If I had not read those books, I would just be another well-meaning liberal mm -hmm. who thinks, gee, blacks don't like being told they're inferior. I'm a champion of blacks. I'm not going to listen to this stuff. Mm -hmm. By confronting Jensen and Murray, I actually have knowledge rather than right opinion. Yeah. That is, I can bring evidence to bear against their arguments. And further, all sorts of things progress thereby. It isn't just the race issue. We learned a lot more about the relationship between subculture and academic ability. We learned that perhaps black mothers in preschool are not as interactive with their children as white mothers when it comes to cognitive problems which implies how we might remedy the situation. Mm. I mean, when you don't know reality, you can't manipulate it. Right. So this is an excellent example of what we miss by suppressing free debate. Right. There wouldn't be two people on campus at Middlebury who know enough to argue with Jensen. All they proved was that they... You, you mean Murray? Uh, Murray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All they proved was that there were more of them and they could chase him off campus and he didn't have enough to chase them off campus. Which is scary. Are there limits to free speech? There are limits in the sense that a person can only spend so much of their life on nonsense. You know, if you... Well, let's say... By, by nonsense, I mean things for which there's virtually no evidence whatsoever. And you have people who will never be convinced. And if they had free use of your time, they would keep you going until the day you die. But, but, <laughs> but in terms, that's, that's, that's essentially whether you engage with someone with those ideas. But should there be constraints on allowing people, say, to deny the Holocaust? So in, in There should be no constraints in the sense that if any group is interested in these people and wants to argue with them, they should be invited to campus. Mm. I would love to have argued with David Irvine. Mm. Um, it would have said to him, you mean Hitler was ignorant of this? Mm. And yet, rolling stock, railway stock, was used to transport Jews to camps mm. to the detriment of the war effort? And you think that all of these people conspired to keep this silent when they hated each other, and one of them would have said to Hitler, do you know what's going on? Now, you see, the argument is just absurd. Mm. Now, I, I would not hire a historian who taught a course that was entirely propagandistic in terms of the Holocaust. I wouldn't even probably hire one who gave both sides equal time, but yeah. I would have no objection whatsoever to bringing such a person to campus mm. and listening to what he had to say and hiring a hall across the street and giving a rebuttal. The, the, <laughs> so he says it. He's not going to stop saying it because he's not on campus. Exactly. So, the, you know, the recent deplatforming of the two Canadian speakers, Stefan Molyneux, who you actually had a conversation with. Stefan Molyneux and Lauren Southern came to, to New Zealand and um, were deplatformed in, in a sense. They weren't allowed to speak in, in both the council-owned venue yeah. or, or the privately-owned venue. Fortunately, you know, in America, a lot of that is 
prevented by a simple statute, yeah. which is even in the state of Kentucky, when I was chairman of Congress of Racial Equality, and was considered, of course, to be someone far too friendly to blacks to tolerate. And we had trouble finding a place to hold our Congress of Racial Equality meetings. There was a statute on the books which said everyone has a right to arrange to hold a meeting at a vacant public school. And no one could stop us from that, the police. No. We could always go to a vacant public school and hold a meeting, even if we were the Ku Klux Klan or the Congress of Racial Equality. Yeah. And some American states have that. Yeah. And so, uh, fortunately, at least, if you can't get on campus, you could at least get just off campus. <laughs> but I'd, I'd really like to hear your opinions on what happened to those two Canadian speakers. They were booked for a council venue. And then the council said they couldn't, um, for health and safety reasons, or very disingenuous Yeah, well, that's reasons. always an excuse. Yeah. I mean, how many New Zealand meetings? You, you know, it puts me in a terrific veto position. Let's imagine that I'm someone who isn't on the side of the angels, and that I'm someone who actually thinks blacks are inferior. And every time someone wants to invite uh, a person to campus, who wants to, in a very rewarding way, discover, discuss the sociological problems of blacks, I phone in and say, I'm going to bomb it. Well, now, there, you know, it, it means that uh, when I was at Maryland in 19, I think it was 71, uh, whenever there was going to be a quiz in the history department, someone phoned in a bomb threat. So you knew every day if there was to be a quiz the next day, you're going to not get into the damned building. <laughs> you know, to give people this power to say, all I need is one person to threaten to avoid free speech. That can kill every speech, not just the speech of these people. Yeah. A fanatic Klansman could kill all speakers that disagreed with him by threatening to bomb. Mm -hmm. And you have to be careful about this. I mean, let's take Charles Brash. Where has there ever been a threat to security when Charles Brash has spoken? Who's Charles Brash? Brash, the one who couldn't speak. Oh, well. Don, Don Brash. Don Brash. Don Brash. Sorry, yes. Don Brash. Yeah, well, yeah. That's, I'd like you to comment on that. Well, so. yes, you know, where, where are these threats to health and so safety? Just, just for the audience, so Don Brash is a um, former leader of uh, one of New Zealand's... And he was head of, of course, the New the, Zealand... The, the, the National Party, which is yeah. one of New Zealand's uh, two main parties. Yeah. And he was essentially um, deplatformed um, from Massey University, wasn't it? Because he was considered anti but he, he was actually going to be talking, to, I think, to the political studies department about his career I in know. politics. Well, the fact that, that, that you were giving him a racist platform, you see, it was irrelevant that he was going to be talking about Winnie the Pooh, because you were giving a racist platform, and that would so drive people like me crazy that we would try to kill him. But, you know, when you take health and safety, why didn't she forbid rugby if she's so interested in health and safety? Then you actually would save some people's lives. Yeah. What about hate speech? Well, what, hate what's, speech what's is your... just a different way. People yeah. use hate speech just to say whatever speech they don't like. Charles Murray was supposedly guilty of hate speech. I know Charles Murray. He's a very temperate man. I've never heard him use a racial epithet. Uh, he has convictions very different from my own. 
I've tried in my writings to bring that, those to bear, and he taught me a great deal about the dynamics of a humane society. That is refuting what he said egalitarian values would lead to in practice made me think about that issue and come up with a much more subtle understanding of the extent to which we want egalitarianism and the extent we don't. So I learned, I don't agree with Charles Murray's meritocracy thesis, but he talked to, uh, having to confront him mm. was enormously illuminating. Mm. And you know, it's just, it's the old thing. You know, if, uh, if you don't want to look at what the other side has to say, it means that your own position will be defective. Unless you're lucky. Yes. <laughs> Is there a relationship between um, you know, what we call hate speech and, and hate speech well, no laws? One, no and... one thinks that anyone should come on campus and just wander around and shriek racial epithets at blacks. Of course not. Right. So we, That's so we... not an attempt to speak to anybody. Yeah. But let's just say they want to hand out a pamphlet which in the pamphlet they use racial epithets. I would let them do it. I mean, you tear it up and throw it away. No one has to read the damn mm. thing. No one has to go to hear Charles Murray talk. No one was going to be taken there in chains. It was that his, it's, you know, the notion now is that university should be a home away from home. And just as you parents wouldn't let the kid across the fence line shout epithets at your kid, so we put them in an environment where nothing should be said that troubles them. Well, of course, to some degree that's so. If whenever a black started to go to class at Middlebury, a group of whites would surround him and start shouting jibes at him, of course you can't have that. Mm -hmm. But if some Ku Kluxer wants to hand out a pamphlet, you look at it and you think, oh, for God's sake, you know, the evidence against this is overwhelming and you toss it away. What do you think about this hypothesis? Is there a relationship between hate speech laws and blasphemy laws in the past? Well, there may be. You see, one thing that gets me about the hate speech laws is that no serious scholar has ever been further from an egalitarian position than uh, the hate speech you, you know, scholars like Jensen and Eystink and others, what they believed about the races was so much closer to what you and I believe than what the Ku Klux Klan believes. I mean, the idea that he's going to corrupt everyone. Actually, these people wouldn't be welcome at a Klan meeting to say that the brightest person in America might be black. There's never been a consensus among scholars, in my opinion, that was more bloody-minded than the general consensus of the public. Mm. <laughs> the notion that these are... And what are students like? You mean, here's an educated person at a good New Zealand university, and all he has to do is hear Don Brash to become anti-Maori? Well, I mean, where's their critical I, I intelligence? Think, I think the big question is, how bad are these people that are being deplatformed? And I think there's a lot of ignorance about the, what these people have actually said. That's right. And so a lot of people are making judgments on the people being deplatformed without any knowledge of what they've said. All you have to do is brand them as a racist or sexist or something. Exactly. Of that sort. And exactly. they're all. Exactly. But even if they are so bad it's people. A, it's a form of witch hunting. Yeah. Even if they are a bad person, let's say they invited the head of the Ku Klux Klan, he hired a hall at Otago. 
I don't have to go. I ignore him. That's, uh, that's, that's actually the best yeah, strategy. About 30 of his clansmen would come to the talk and they already are convinced and, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it seems to me peculiar, this notion that uh, just because someone transports their hate speech from a, a, a square in South Carolina to the University of South Carolina, you've accomplished something by keeping him off campus. In, in fact, the whole thing of banning people and deplatforming just gives them free publicity. So you're, you're, as, as a strategy, it's yeah. actually counterproductive. It's you, a bit of an own, own goal. You see, I lived through the McCarthy period. And if you wanted to have a communist on campus, the very dignified vice chancellor would say, oh, they have closed minds. You can't have a dialogue with them because they won't change their opinions no matter what. So since they don't meet the minimal prerequisites for a dialogue, we're perfectly in order to keep them off campus. Well, how about all the people on campus who are hard-shelled Baptists, you know, <laughs> who are dogmatic about religious things, or mm -hmm. all the people on campus who are dogmatic that classical music is better than modern music? I mean, to, to go around and saying, but even if you couldn't change the mind of the communists, you would gain something by hearing his arguments and arguing with them. Mm -hmm. You so, know, it's ridiculous to say the person has to be persuadable. Yeah. What you want to know is, would this be an educational service? You're essentially saying you can't think in a bubble. You can't think clearly right. in a bubble. If you, if you draw but, arbitrary limits to the ideas you're surrounded with, mm -hmm. You are bound to be mistaken on a lot of things. The analogy I draw is, is trying to play a sport by yourself. Yes, you know, of course you, you, you actually need you need yeah. an opposition. Yes, to, you do to, to some to... degree. This is true even of a runner. Mm. Yes, because yeah. the best runner knows he's best only by competing with someone yeah. like me, who's just a better than average mm. runner. Mm. Is there a relationship between um, postmodernism? and the current machinations on... on Only in the sense that they deny the possibility of objectivity or truth. Yes. And this, of course, once you say there's no such thing as truth, and yep. truth has a political dimension, so all truths are weapons of oppression, it makes it easy for people to say, well, we define the world in egalitarian terms, and if someone disagrees with us, he defines the world in totalitarian terms, and therefore will be intolerant. So there is that element in it. I mean, the main problem with postmodernism is that it's absurd. You, you know, uh, if they were in court, and a witness was testifying as to whether they saw them do a murder, it would turn out that there are not an infinite number of interpretations that would be acceptable. They would want the person to say, no, he didn't shoot a gun at him, he was only holding a box of Cracker Jack. So when the chips are down, all of them have a theory of truth. That is, all of them admit that certain verbal messages are closer to reality than others. Mm. It's only when they get in away from every, you know, all of them want a, an up-to-date bus timetable to catch a bus rather than an out-of-date timetable. Yeah. So it's uh, uh, a mere absurdity mm. 
to say that there are no things closer to the truth than anything else. For example, if you read their books and you said this book is about the Bobsy twins going to the seashore, they would say, well, that is not as good an interpretation as the following. Hmm. So it's ridiculous to say that a reality is a text and any interpretation is as good as another. Hmm. The worst thing they do is that they muddle students. Yes. Yeah, well, they, how do they muddle students? Oh, well, any student who comes within range of their voice is that little bit more muddled than yeah. <laughs> were before. Now, I would let them on campus and give courses yeah. because, sadly, just as there used to be a lot of people on campuses who believed in the nonsense that Hegel wrote, there are a lot of people on campus who believe, and they've never been able to coherently define it for me, but they say they believe in postmodernism, and you ought to know what these people say and be capable of arguing with them. Mm -hmm. But I don't spend much time on them. I mean, what they say is so absurd. Mm. What is the role of an iconoclist or a, a heretic? in our society. And this is where freedom of speech is obviously really important. Yeah. Well, their role is that they often are more imaginative of thinking of objections to received opinion than other people are because their mind rose more freely. That is, they seem to be interested in raising objections, peculiarly because those objections are difficult to answer not because they have a passionate contrary faith. And to the extent that they pose interesting objections, they're welcome. If they're iconoclastic just in terms of just objecting to everything for the sake of objecting to everything, they get tedious. So iconoclast can have an important role. Some of Nietzsche is obviously the role of an iconoclast. That is, I don't think he took literally everything he said as an objection to prevailing European morality. But you cannot have an awareness of what humane ideals are like uh, without knowing how to answer Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche, there, there's a, a book I wrote recently called Homage to Political Philosophy. It has a chapter on Oxbridge Nice Ethics. And by that I mean they all preach the humane morality we believe, well, I tend to believe in but they never confronted Nietzsche's objections to it. And therefore their awareness of the nature of that morality is deficient. Uh, because you don't know what something is like until you can distinguish it from alternatives. You know, you say that only a Maori can know Maori culture. Well, in a sense it's true, but in a sense they are blind because to really know Maori culture, you have to know the doors it shuts. You have to know the alternatives it doesn't allow for, as well as the satisfactions it allows for. In, in some sense, we actually... De Tocqueville wrote the best book on American democracy yes. because he was a Frenchman. Yes. And he saw things that Americans took for granted. Yes, well, that's, that's essentially what I was about to say, was we actually need them. Obviously, we don't want people going around with hammers smashing everything. Yeah. Whether we get the Cultural Revolution in China. Yeah. But to go in there with a hammer... Yeah. And, and not certain things over. Yes, they don't get into much trouble until they try to knock things over that arouses powerful emotions. But they should be tolerated there too. Just to finish off, what are the sacred cows at the moment that, that we oh, are no, officially sacred, not allowed to talk, to, yeah, to no, talk about? No genetic differences between the genders and the races. 
anything that ranks people as verboten in an educational department. Cross-cultural judgments are ruled out in an anthropology department. Sociologists are far more fixated on socioeconomic status rather than some cultural differences than they ought to be. Uh, philosophers, to some degree, merge with the modern consensus, which is a humane egalitarian one, without looking at critics of that consensus like Nietzsche. Uh, those are the main ones. I mean, I, I come into contact mainly in the humanities and social sciences of Walden codes, as I call them, that it's very difficult to challenge and be hired or promoted or listened to. So you, you find this quite frequently. Right. Well, we end it there. Thank you very yeah, much. Okay. Yeah.